is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, and I do this podcast because I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the accident happened there in 1979. And I don't want you or anyone you love going through the aftermath of anything like that or worse. Later in the podcast, we'll be talking with Lou Zeller, the executive director of the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League. Seven states, seven nuclear focal points, an entire region in the southeast working together to get rid of nukes. Hear how they got started, what they're doing now, and their support for the Coalition Against Nukes rally for a nuclear-free future in September. All of this coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, August 28, 2012, and here is the week's nuclear news. Starting in Japan, a nuclear expert from that country has said that the melted fuel may have gone through the cement floor at Fukushima and into the ground surrounding the reactors. Hiroaki Koide, a nuclear reactor specialist and assistant professor at Kyoto University's Nuclear Research Institute, spoke at the Atomic Age Symposium 2 on May 5th of 2012. He said, the problem right now is, where in the world is the melted nuclear material that is in the plant right now? Unfortunately, we have no way of figuring this out. We can't go in and look. We have no idea where the melted nuclear core is at this point. 100 tons of fuel was in the reactor. It fell through the steel reactor. So where did the melted material go from there? It fell into the containment vessel. What is that made of? Also steel. What TEPCO has been telling us is that underneath that steel is a floor of cement, and that cement hasn't melted yet. But it's not as if TEPCO has gone there and seen if this is the case. It's based on calculations that they claim to have worked out that way. But I don't believe it for one second. There's at least a possibility that it's gone through all of it and leaked into the ground. If something like that happens, there's a strong possibility that it leaks into the environment and the ocean is right there. And I really hope something is done so the material doesn't spread to the greater environment. We're going to link to a video of Professor Koide speaking at the Atomic Age Symposium through his interpreter. That will be up on NuclearHotSeat.com. Click on the blog page. According to Asahi, government calculations were way off about the country's anti-nuclear sentiment. Policymakers in Japan who were determined to maintain nuclear energy had believed most people would still want it as part of the nation's power generation despite the accident at Fukushima. Boy, were they wrong. In a new government poll, 46.7% of respondents favored scrapping nuclear power generation by 2030. In fact, anti-nuclear sentiment has grown so large that it could force the government to adjust its plan for the nation's long-term energy policy. This will likely become a key issue in the election campaigns. It is necessary to touch on zero nuclear power generation if Prime Minister Noto wants to win the presidential election, as expected on September 21st. This according to a lawmaker close to the Prime Minister. The government may adopt a nuclear-free policy, but still emasculated by leaving the target year ambiguous 
or adding preconditions. This from our friend Yori Mokazuki at Fukushima Diary. In Japan, the Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry, and Fisheries is spreading propaganda called support by eating. They are pushing food from contaminated area, meaning around Fukushima, even to hospitals and senior citizens' homes. On August 22nd, MAF, the Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry, and Fisheries, sent an official request to Public Interest Incorporated Associated asking the Japanese medical Kyoshoku, which is their lunch association, to consume more food from the contaminated area. In translation, this statement said, In order to improve the consumption of food from disaster area, we request you to actively purchase and consume food from disaster area for medical facilities and nursing facilities. And so Japan continues to commit genocide against its own most vulnerable citizens. Japanese officials have released estimates showing that approximately 5 million tons of debris has been swept out into the Pacific Ocean after the tsunami that hit on March 11th. That debris is now spread out from Alaska to Mexico and has officials concerned about invasive species and toxic materials that could also be carried by the debris. The cleanup is especially difficult in Alaska because of the remoteness of areas like Montague Island and the expense required to transport volunteers and equipment to the remote islands. Plastic foam, balls, shoes, and other marine debris now litters the beaches. It must be collected, bagged, and then hauled out of remote locations by foot or by boat. On Montague Island in Prince William Sound, volunteers spent two weeks cleaning up approximately 40 tons of debris, which had largely appeared in the span of a few days. This is a slow-rolling disaster, said Juliet Haskett, a spokeswoman for the office of Senator Mark Begich of Alaska. Significant changes in type and amount on a shoreline are an indicator that debris is from the tsunami. Officials have warned that debris tsunami could continue to pound the West Coast for the next four years, and it doesn't take very long for the accumulation to have a drastic effect in irreparable ways. Perhaps one of the worst possible to deal with is the invasive species hitching a ride across the Pacific because it is impossible to locate and dispose of them all. Here in the U.S., Pundits have watched with interest as Hurricane Isaac has brushed past the Republican National Convention in Tampa and taken aim possibly on New Orleans. However, for nuclear activists, we've been keeping an eye on the nuke plants in its path. The current path of Hurricane Isaac may brush Turkey Point Nuclear Plant in Florida and head directly for the Farley Nuclear Power Plant in Alabama. Turkey Point sits on the coastline, Farley is inland in Alabama, but may still receive a considerable storm depending on what category Isaac is at when it makes landfall. As much of a concern as the storm is the power outage potential. All U.S. nuclear power plants rely on off-site AC power to operate and stay in a safe shutdown mode. If the plants lose off-site power, they are then dependent on the diesel generators. If the diesel generators fail, The plant goes into a station blackout, which is a higher-risk situation. Endangered humpback whales have converged on the central coast of California just as the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant prepares for seismic testing that has been accused of frightening, deafening, and killing sea life. Beginning in September, 
Pacific Gas and Electric plans to produce a three-dimensional map of the shoreline fault's deeper regions by firing high-energy air guns dragged in an array behind a research vessel. Whales, dolphins, and porpoises have been shown to change their behavior at distances of over four miles away from the site of this kind of testing. According to Stop the Diablo Canyon Seismic Testing, a Facebook page that was launched this summer, Our position is that seismic testing is a threat not only to whales, but to all of us because it allows Pacific Gas and Electric to delay removal of the nuclear plant from the earthquake fault. Untold numbers of humpback whales have congregated in the waters PG&E is surveying, including Avila Beach, a community just around the point from the nuclear power plant. The question is, with the humpback whale being an endangered species, with them on the picket line... And doing the whale equivalent of a sit-in to protest this? Can they be interfered with and moved away, or can the testing proceed? After all, they are a protected species. We'll let you know more about this story as it develops. And on a sad note, Katie the goat has died. On Sunday, August 15th, Katie died of inoperable cancer, which was bound to happen eventually, considering that she grazed downwind from a nuclear power plant. Katie was found as a stray wandering along a rural road and ended up as a pet, eating in a sloping meadow in Waterford, Connecticut. She ate the sweet grasses growing five miles north of the Millstone nuclear power plant. Lab techs would come by and test Katie's milk. In a 2001 report, Dominion Resources, Inc., the owner of the Millstone plant, acknowledged Katie's milk contained radioactive isotope strontium-90, among other frightening carcinogens. However, Dominion denied that Millstone was the cause of this toxicity. Apparently, the radiation in Katie's milk must have come from somewhere else. Must have been the swamp gas. The State's Department of Energy Protection also concluded Dominion wasn't to blame. Isn't it interesting what money can buy? The agency's then-director, Regina McCarthy, eventually went on to become assistant administrator for air and radiation at the Environmental Protection Agency under President Barack Obama. Activist groups get started in humble ways, often with a single person becoming concerned, speaking to others, getting together a meeting to discuss the problem, reaching out to other groups that might have information, That's the way we all grow into the vibrant national and international community of anti-nuclear activists, the one that is emerging now 18 months after Fukushima. The story of how a major regional coalition got started and grew is part of what is shared by today's Nuclear Hot Seat interview guest. The Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League is a regional community-based nonprofit environmental organization working for environmental protection and progressive social change in Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee. A lot of area to cover, a lot of issues to cover, and we are fortunate to have on Nuclear Hot Seat this week Lou Zeller, the Executive Director of the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League. Lou, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Blue Ridge addresses a wide range of environmental issues over a seven-state area. But for the sake of this interview, can you give us a picture of the nuclear issues that are situated in the southeast? Blue Ridge was founded back in 1984 in the Blue Ridge part of North Carolina and Virginia. 
That's how we got our name, because some of the first meetings were held in a small church just a stone's throw from the Blue Ridge Parkway, which follows the crests of the mountains through this part of North Carolina and Virginia. Over the years, we have expanded to where we now have projects and active chapters in seven states. Organizing issue of Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League was a high-level nuclear waste dump at the time proposed by the United States Department of Energy. Many of us were appalled to find out that they were, were talking about high-level nuclear waste from nuclear power reactors being placed in a deep hole in the ground, glorified with all kinds of names like repository and whatnot, but basically these were going to be waste dumps from all of the operating nuclear power plants in the country. And where was it proposed that they would be placed? They, at one point, narrowed it down to about 12 sites in eastern United States. Two of those were in North Carolina, some of them were in Virginia, some of them were in Georgia, and others in other eastern states. And my home was about 20 miles from one of those preliminarily uh, selected sites. That's a lot of motivation to get involved in a movement. Here I was, you know, raising small children and had a full-time job. And so it began with organizing our own community, talking to neighbors, having meetings, putting plans together, figuring out what we could do, finding information. And uh, in that process, we began to meet people. And what was the upshot of these meetings that you had, the discussions, and the push by the government to get this waste depository, nuclear waste depository, in your area? Well, a lot happened. It caused a firestorm. We were holding public meetings. We were having, uh, we were filling up high school auditoriums with people. In my home county, there, in, in Madison County, there's. Uh, the high school there, which uh, the biggest crowds before uh, drawn were for the basketball game on Friday night, but we managed to draw 300 people uh, to that first meeting uh, back in 1986, it was, and uh, we were happy if we had gotten 30 people, but we had speakers there, and uh, the television station came, and so we were kind of... Uh, riding the back of this tiger all of a sudden. and uh, But we were in good position because we had uh, made contact with people from, at that point, the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League, which had been in existence for about two years, 1984, I said. So you were just working as kind of a, a community group that was concerned, and then you found this other group that had been around for a couple of years. That's right. We didn't know anything. We were... Back in those days, uh, research was done in you know newspapers and libraries and microfilm and whatnot, and we did that, of course, in hard copy documents. Blue Ridge had pulled down documents from the Department of Energy. Uh, the founder of the organization got a hold of these documents and uh, either read them or had them read to her uh, because she had poor vision and uh, got original information from boxes, literally boxes full of these tomes uh, produced by the United States Department of Energy. You know, they had contacted, Blue Ridge had contacted 
officials in other states as far away as Wisconsin and Nevada to find out what was being said in those places because this was a national program by the United States Department of Energy to find not one but two nuclear dump sites, one in the west and one in the east. So what was the upshot of the actions that your local group and then in connection with Blue Ridge were able to take? Well, one of the hot points was uh, a public hearing which occurred in Asheville, North Carolina, about 50 miles from my home at that time. And the hearing was filled to capacity. It was held at the Civic Center in Asheville, which is a large building. And uh, that happened after the hearing I told you in Madison County at the high school. And uh, by then we had drummed up enough opposition to where it was Madison County, Buncombe County, where Asheville is, and Haywood County, and all the nearby uh, community groups had established themselves in these rural counties as well as in Asheville. Long story short is there was thousands of people showed up to that public hearing to the point that they had to have two simultaneous hearings and had 24 hours of continuous testimony into the record there, and that's in three-minute bites. This is such a wonderful picture of the power of grassroots activism that no small gesture goes unnoticed and can become the seed to grow into a massive demonstration. So I take it that the uh, dumps, because they don't exist today, that you were able to get them derailed from happening in in your area. That's right. In 1987, we uh, Congress changed the law. This was uh, because of the work that we and others had done. It was a unified campaign. It wasn't just Blue Ridge. It was groups from all over the eastern United States. We met with folks from Maine and, and Georgia and in Nevada and Texas and Mississippi, where some of these other sites were, and had a plan put together, which happened in Maryville College in Tennessee in 1987. We put together a national plan. We had citizens groups from 17 states at that meeting, a three-day meeting. Uh, we eventually got uh, a lobbyist, got some funding, sent somebody to Washington, and again, uh, what happened at the end of that legislative season was that Congress blinked. They changed the law. To everyone's surprise, including mine, they found that, well, you know, there's not so much nuclear waste as we thought there might be, so we'd only need one national nuclear dump site. And that's so when they put their focus on Yucca Mountain? They took the eastern site off uh, of the table, which mollified many of the eastern legislators, and uh, did pass the Screw Nevada Bill, uh, which which is what it was called, not officially, of course, but uh, it's the best name I've heard for it. There's another story there, but uh, we didn't leave it go, of course. But that's what Congress did in 1987. Well, let's take this up to the current time with the seven states that the uh, that are represented in the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League. What are the nuclear hotspots that you are currently focusing on? Starting in about 2004, we were aware of a whole new spate of nuclear power plant licensing going on, and many of them were in the southeast. Not all of them, but many of them were. And one of the first ones that we learned about was in Virginia in a small community called Louisa, where the Dominion Virginia Power had put in a license application for a site permit for two or more additional reactors 
at a power station that had operated for about the last uh, two decades in uh, northern Virginia. Then we found out about other sites. South well, excuse me, was that site in Virginia? Was that North Anna? That was North Anna. Mm-hmm. Still is North Anna. That is ongoing, in fact. We've winnowed it down to one uh, nuclear power plant there, uh, and that fight is ongoing. South Carolina, same thing. We have members in South Carolina. We have members in Georgia. Vogel Nuclear Power Station to expand from two to four reactors there. South Carolina has a site which was started back in the 1980s and then abandoned by Duke Energy, and they brought that site back and submitted a new application there to complete or to actually build two reactors at that site. In Alabama, Tennessee Valley Authority had started a uh, nuclear power plant and got it 50 to 90 percent completed. In Hollywood, Alabama, they were going to complete those reactors, uh, and this happened in 2008. So, you know, from 2004, 2006, 2008, all these applications began to surface, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the federal agency, was considering this under this whole new licensing regime, which had been set up years before, but had never been utilized. And this was uh, a new way of uh, licensing nuclear power plants. And so we were, again, um, in the hot seat, you might say. The group has recently filed motions to bring waste confidence contentions at North Anna, W.S. Lee in South Carolina, and Belfont in Alabama. Can you explain what this action is in reaction to and what you hope to achieve with it? This action is the culmination of actually many years of work. Even before 2011, when we agreed to provide a standing, uh, along with a couple of other conservation and environmental groups, to challenge the waste confidence rule. That happened early in uh, 2011, and that case was recently decided in our favor. Now, our challenge, which was about the nuclear waste decision, what was called the waste confidence decision, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they got their own language up there. So their nuclear uh, waste confidence rule, which is a, a written down rule in the Code of Federal Regulations, says that Someday there will be a solution to the nuclear waste problem. Therefore, you can't talk about it in a nuclear license because we consider it the solution is out there somewhere. They essentially sidestep having to deal with what happens to nuclear waste stored at Belfont or at North Anna or at uh, any other nuclear power plant site in the United States if there is no national solution, if there is no Yucca Mountain, Nevada, if there is no Eastern Nuclear Waste Dump Repository, what will happen? So the environmental impacts of very long-term storage, beyond 20 years, 40 years, the licensing period of these reactors, was handled by FIAT, by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in this rule. That's the rule that the D.C. Circuit Court threw out in June. Now that you have filed motions, what do you hope to achieve with the motions that you have filed against these three nuclear reactors? The D.C. Circuit made their decision, um, but a lot of times what we have found is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is difficult to nail down. You are so diplomatic with that wording. They can ignore the obvious, 
And so in order to make it plain that this was not going to go away, that they couldn't simply write a new rule which would comply with the D.C. Circuit's order and get away with it, we said that, okay, in all the nuclear plant sites you mentioned, we have earlier, years ago, in 2006, 2008, when we first opposed uh, those licenses, we brought up this very contention, this very argument, saying that Yucca Mountain ain't happening. It was clear to us years ago, before it was to them, that it wasn't going to go anywhere, and therefore you have to consider the environmental consequences of that, the public health consequences of long-term storage at scores of sites all over the nation, and this particular site, whichever one we were talking about. And those were all dismissed, saying, well, there's a rule here that says we don't have to talk about this. Your argument is dismissed. That was back in 2006-2008. Yeah, that happened over a period of time. So now you are you have refiled against them on the same basis? That's right. We have the chickens have come home to roost, you might say. The judge has issued their order and so we went right back with a general argument saying that okay, at Belfont or at uh, William States Lee or at North Anna we uh, brought these contentions up before. Now you have to deal with on a site-by-site basis what's going to be the impact in northern Virginia, what's going to be the impact in upstate South Carolina, and so forth. What is the best-case scenario you can imagine coming from this challenge? Well, they're wriggling on the hook is what is going on right now. And so it's anybody's guess. There's two ways that the federal agency can go with this whole thing. They could come back and do a generic or a, a general rule, and that's one possibility. That would be easy for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to do from an administrative point of view. In other words, less work for them. Or they could go with uh, the site-by-site explanations of uh, they would have to hold a public hearing, a supplemental environmental impact statement. There would be new hearings, scoping hearings, saying that here are the issues that have to be discussed uh, for, let's say, a 60 or 100-year time frame if these wastes are going to remain here. So that in a way, is preferable because each of these sites is unique. Handling it with a, a general rule never made sense in the first place, and it was simply a, a way to sidestep the particulars, but that's the way the Commission does things. That's, in fact, the whole new spate of nuclear power plants has been done this way by handling things in general so that the, a decision is made and years later you find out about it and it's too late to argue about it. That was the waste confidence rule. And there are many other examples. So is this an action that can be copied in other parts of the country? This is, in fact. There are things that can be done, in fact, with uh, all the nuclear power plant sites. In fact, outside of the named nuclear power plant sites, which are in the case that was decided in June by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, I would bring up these issues in any other licensing decision at any other power station, whether it's a, a license renewal, a license amendment at that nuclear power plant, even though they weren't named perhaps in this case, in which case if they're named, then they're included in the rulemaking or the site-specific decision-making about the environmental impacts of high-level nuclear waste, radioactive uh, pollution. I would bring it up wherever there is a nuclear power plant. What we have found is this, Levy. Oftentimes, the procedures that you are faced with 
in a decision like this, whether it's a Nuclear Regulatory Commission or other environmental agency, when it looks like there is no chance that you can win. It's not the only thing you should do, but it is important to do whatever you can and take advantage of the opportunities that are there. That, in my book, is direct action. Direct action can be putting a poster board sign together and standing outside the corporate headquarters of the the power company or something like that. But direct action also is getting firsthand information, finding out where the levers are of decision-making, and if nothing else, slowing them down because you never know when you start out what you're going to find out in six months from now. That was the lesson we learned when we were fighting the Department of Energy and the high-level nuclear waste dump. That is so encouraging for other activists to hear. What I want to do is shift this now to the future. I understand that Blue Ridge has become one of the endorsers of the Coalition Against Nukes Rally for a Nuclear-Free Future, which is taking place September 20th through 22nd in Washington, D.C. What attracted the group to this particular event, and how do you plan to participate? Our communications coordinator has been working closely with some of their regional collaborative work on um, nuclear power issues. There was recently a summit held in Chattanooga, Tennessee, for example. She became aware of some of the other activities going on in the country, and that was the Coalitions Against Nukes and Priscilla Starr and all those good people that are focusing on the events in September. So sure, we wanted to uh, pile on because I think that kind of activity is good. It builds solidarity. It exchanges information. It builds a movement. That's what we need in terms of nuclear power is a movement to move away from this poison power source to bring about a a better future. Where do you plan on going in the future? In the future, I think the building of a movement is underway. There are many people who feel like there is something wrong here, and there's rotten fish somewhere in this federal agency, which has basically... Uh, rolled over and played dead for so many years, given the nuclear industry exactly what it wants, it's time to put an end to that. And it's going to take a movement. And what we see happening, for example, with our cohorts in in Russia or in Europe or in Japan following Fukushima, I think is uh, instructive. I think that's the kind of a movement that we need here in the United States. This is where nuclear power started. This is where nuclear power has to end. Lou, if our listeners want to learn more about the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League and support your activities, what do you suggest that they do? Well, our website has become kind of an encyclopedia of all our work. Make use of the search engine, which is in the website at bredl.org. That's the acronym for Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League. There's quite a lot of information there about activities and you know, just type in a keyword there and find out more. I would encourage people to join. There's a, a way to do that from the website with their credit card or send in a check for $20 a year. You'll get uh, a quarterly newsletter, which will update you on all of our activities here, and uh, that's a good beginning. Lou, I'm looking forward to seeing you and so many of your supporters in D.C. For now, I want to thank you for being on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Lou Zeller is the Executive Director of the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League. 
Today's radiation protection information comes from Dr. Helen Caldicott's recommendations on what needs to happen in post-Fukushima Japan. She says, All areas of Japan should be tested to assess how radioactive the soil and water are because the winds can blow the radioactive pollution hundreds of miles from the point of source at Fukushima. Under no circumstances should radioactive rubbish and debris be incinerated, as this simply spreads the isotopes far and wide to reconcentrate in food and fish, to which I add, and the human body. All batches of food must be adequately tested for specific radioactive elements using spectrometers. No radioactive food must be sold or consumed, nor must radioactive food be diluted for sale with non-radioactive food because radioactive elements will reconcentrate in various bodily organs. All water used for human consumption should be tested weekly. All fish caught off the east coast of Japan must be tested for years to come. And all people particularly children, pregnant women, and women of childbearing age still living in high radiation zones should be immediately evacuated to non-radioactive areas of Japan. Dr. Caldicott had additional suggestions that she made. All of them are pertinent, all of them are powerful, and none of them are being followed in Japan. You'll find a link to the full report on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, and just click on the blog button, to get to the page where everything connected with this podcast is written out. Also, dealing with the food issue, if you want to hear a great one-hour teleseminar on food radiation issues, there's going to be one held this Sunday, September 2nd, at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 o'clock Pacific Time. It's entitled, The Nuclear Fuel Chain, From Fukushima to Our Kitchen Tables, a live call-in event featuring a conversation with Kimberly Roberson, author of the book Silence Deafening Fukushima Fallout, A Mother's Response. Kim, besides being the mother to a very active four-year-old, is also a nutritionist, organic farmer, and former Greenpeace activist, so she's got serious creds in this arena. She's joined by noted activist Mary Beth Brangan, who is co-director of Ecological Options Network and an award-winning filmmaker-producer. This one-hour phone-in will feature an informative 30-minute interview, followed by an open Q&A with callers, and then a special announcement. This is an opportunity to learn more about the urgent need to stop cancer-causing radioactive fallout from getting into our food supply here in the U.S. To find out more about this important teleseminar and to sign up, go to the website www.silencedeafening.com. Here's a final thought. This is inspired by Daniel Hirsch, a nuclear policy lecturer at UC Santa Cruz. He was in Oceanside, California on August 25th to voice concerns about the potential dangers of Southern California Edison restarting its reactors at the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station. During his excellent speech, in referring to the reactors, he said, These are very sick puppies. Dan, I love you. We at Nuclear Hot Seat love you, and we all respect the wonderful work you're doing. But we must request, in the strongest possible terms, that you end this senseless slander of puppies. Puppies are cute, cuddly. They're little love buckets, and no matter how sick they are, with time and love and medical treatment, they can and do heal. The same cannot be said 
of nuclear reactors, especially the two failed units run by the numbnuts at San Onofre. Please, Dan, in the future, leave the puppies out of it. However, in this same speech, Dan did have some great quotes, such as, Nuclear is safe until it isn't safe. When citing Edison's plans to restart one of the reactors soon, quote, just to see what happens, they actually said that. Dan replied, It is the kind of experiment where there are 8.5 million guinea pigs. And finally, he argued that the NRC is run by those with close ties in the nuclear energy industry. This is an uneven fight, he said. There are a lot of powerful people behind this. Yeah, Dan, but we've got the puppies. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 28, 2012. You can find us posted on NuclearHotSeat.com forward slash blog, on Facebook, and on iTunes podcasts. Feel free to share our links and forward the download and let everybody you know know that we're here. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call now. Do not go back to sleep. <laughs>